Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Feudal Future Podcast. I'm Marshall Toplansky. I'm Joel Kotkin. And today we are really excited to have Nick Eberstadt with us. Uh, Professor Eberstadt holds the Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute. His research focuses on demographics and economic development generally. He is, when he talks about and, and researches uh, uh, international matters, he focuses on the Korean Peninsula. But when he looks at domestic issues, he focuses a great deal on the workforce. And he wrote a book in 2016 called um, Men Without Work, America's Invisible Crisis. And he recently updated that in the post-pandemic world. Nick, welcome. You know, it just seems so odd to us that when you look at all the unemployment numbers and how robust the uh, the job market is, that we would have a crisis of uh, of large proportion uh, that stems from people not working. Could you explain that to us? Marshall, Joe, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a, it's a blast for me to be here with you. Uh, it's a real paradox, isn't it? Because we have a peacetime labor shortage, wartime labor shortages, we kind of understand. But the idea that in an open, affluent society, we would have uh, almost 11 million unfilled positions uh, with many of these uh, prospective jobs requiring very little in the way of skills, except for the skill of showing up on time regularly, not stoned. Uh, it's, it's a real paradox. And if we look at what's happened since the uh, beginning of the pandemic, we see this strange kind of uh, mirroring uh, distortion in the workforce. Uh, on the one hand, the number of unfilled positions has jumped by, let's say, roughly 4 million since, uh, you know, since before uh, COVID. At the same time, uh, the deficit in people in the workforce against trend, against the pre-COVID trend, is also about 4 million. So something happened during COVID uh, that was completely unexpected and uh, unpredicted. Now, I was taught economics shortly after the end of the Stone Age. And back then, they told us that the lump of labor theory was a fallacy. It wasn't that the good Lord sprinkled a certain number of hours of work on every continent. Um, but when you see this, you know, uh, De this uh, surfeit of unfilled jobs and this deficit of manpower, it looks almost like the uh, it looks almost like the lump of labor fallacy brought it brought you know incarnate. Yeah. Um, what I can I can break it down for you a little bit in terms of the arithmetic, but there are some I think some deep problems that this uh, uh, that this new development kind of reveals about our situation. Well, you know, as a political economist, right, that's your your background. Yeah. Somehow I would expect you to say that there's a link between policy that has been put in place somehow and this and this outcome. Is is that true or is it just happenstance? Marshall, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Thank you for setting me up. Uh, <laughs> so uh, so I'll go through the arithmetic of it. We've got about 
4 million fewer people in the workforce than we would have expected on pre-COVID trend. Um, let's say something like a million, maybe a little bit shy of a million, are immigrants who didn't come to the U.S. in 2020 and 2021. Uh, Figuring out immigration flows, as you know very well, is a bit of a mugs game because the official numbers are so rotten, you have to do it as a residual, you know, in the rear view mirror. Let's say it's about a million. That still leaves uh, over three million, uh, you know, unaccounted for. So, um, you know, COVID killed a million Americans, more than a million Americans. It's a catastrophe. Uh, but very few of those people were actually uh, in the workforce. Overwhelmingly, that was a group of people who were older. Tired seniors. So um, there's also long COVID that people suffer from, and millions of people re report suffering from long COVID. However, when you look at the, the Census Bureau's household pulse survey, if you ask the people who are out of the workforce and have long COVID, are you out of the workforce because of long COVID? You see the difference there? A couple of hundred thousand. Mm -hmm. So that's, I mean, a couple of hundred thousand is a real number, but it means, but not, but compared to 4 million, it's a rather small number. So we're talking about a couple of million people who can't be accounted for through these other explanations. And that's, I think, where we get to the policy um, impact. Um, we all know that every policy has an unintended consequence. And when you have massive, heroic policies of the sort that we enacted to try to avoid a second Great Depression with the lockdown in, you know, in March of 2020, you have massive, heroic scale, unintended consequences. So uh, if you look at what happened in the macro economy uh, in 2020 and 2021, you will see that thanks to immense government transfers to keep spending going, to keep uh, to keep things from locking up, uh, disposable income, disposable household income actually rose. It actually jumped a bit in 2020 and 2021. I mean, you guys may have studied history better than I have, but that's the only historical example I'm aware of where a national economic crisis actually coincided with an increase in uh, household disposable income. And there was so much household disposable income that people didn't even spend it all. We had a doubling of of personal savings rates during this period. They've gone back down now, okay. Uh, they've actually, they're actually lower than they were before COVID. But during this period of increased uh, extraordinary uh, personal savings, uh, people accumulated, by my estimate, a, uh, a nest egg from transfers of somewhere north of $2.5 trillion. There were also wealth effects from the zero interest rate policy, and there were big wealth effects from that, but let's just stick with this for a moment. Um, so $2.5 trillion, even you know, among friends, is a lot of money these days. And so some people, uh, some people use that money to supplement their earnings, and some people use their, that money to uh, substitute uh, for earnings. But I think what part of what we are seeing, a large part of what we are seeing, is the unintended consequence of wealth effects from 
COVID era policies. I think that has a lot to do with the missing, with at least two plus missing, two plus million missing workers from the workforce today. I, I wonder if if it's also maybe, uh, and this is from your earlier work to some extent, also kind of a social breakdown that people, particularly among males, um, you know, I, I have a daughter who works at a big box store in, in Tucson and she's very hardworking. She gets there at 530. She says that people don't show up. They call in at the last moment. Um, there seems to be something, and this is a, a, a business which would have a lot of male workers. Sure. Um, what is there something going on sociologically? Um, you know, first here in the United States, and I know you've studied Korea, and I know Korea has like an extremely low birth rate. I mean, it's weird that we have a very low birth rate and we and we have our labor sur- surplus. Um, what's going on in the society that's causing it, maybe outside of just the policy sure. agenda? Well, well, Joel, I mean, that's a that's a uh, absolutely central question. I mean, it's an absolutely simple question. And what we're dealing with, I think, is a big historical phenomenon in the U.S. with the uh, flight of flight from work by men. We're talking about something that began in the mid '60s. Anything that's a big historical phenomenon has lots of different aspects to it, lots of different contributions, of course. So I'm not going to say there's any one particular thing, but we can see a number of them. Uh, uh, Today's today's missing workers uh, are accounted for not just by the prime age men that I have been describing in this uh, revised series of books, the so-called men of prime working age is uh, 25 to 54. They're actually a small fraction of this new missing group. The new face of the flight from work is men and women over 55 mm-hmm. were the only really bright spot in our kind of like dismal work tableau uh, in the 21st century. The only group with rising labor force participation and work rates before uh, the pandemic. And also prime age women who um, had had not been uh, had not been a kind of like a, a group that I saw red flashing lights with before uh, before the pandemic. Although I I don't want to make too much of it, but I think you can see kind of yellow flashing lights there now, and I can explain that if that's of interest. But you go back and look at the guys. Um, you know, you've had this flight from the workforce going on relentlessly since the mid '60s. This is more than two generations of flight from work, and the uh, I hate I hate this term, but I'll use it. The conventional narrative from academic and policy circles I don't think is convincing about what has happened there. The uh, the received wisdom is that this is a consequence of economic and structural change in our economy, right? You know, so we've had less demand for low skilled uh, workers decline in the share of uh, manufacturing in the workforce, China gets in the WTO, globalization, you know, outsourcing, yada, yada. All of that is true. All of that is incontestable. But I don't think that that's all of the story, and I don't think it's even most of the story. Because if you look, this gets at your deeper questions, Joel. If you look at the um, graph 
for percentage of men not in labor force from 65 to 2016, when I did my first edition of Men Without Work, um, it's almost a straight line. It's almost a straight line up. Uh, you can't tell where recessions were. You can't tell where China was entering WTO. You can't tell where, you know, we came up with these beautiful little disruptive technologies. Um, and if you, this part is even stranger to me and I can't explain it. The line to 2022 for not in labor force men uh, proceeds exactly from 2016 to where we are in 2022. So it's just like you'd drawn the same straight line up. Uh, that is not uh, economic and structural change. And needless to say, uh, having a extraordinary uh, labor shortage when um, when people are sitting on the sidelines of the workforce, as we have today, cannot be explained, you know, by uh, Mister Miracle of the Market. Uh, miracle of the Market solves economic problems; it does not solve sociological problems. To, to what degree do you think? You know, I'm listening to you talk, and I'm realizing once again, Joel, you and I are covering for our kids. Right, we're we're the we're the old guys that like, okay, our kids are kind of slacking off. We're we're signing up to continue to work, and I wonder, obviously being a little facetious there, um, I'm I'm wondering the degree to which the fact that the baby boomer generation, which is my generation, Joel's generation, was really a reflection of the Great Depression and the ethics that our parents uh, developed during the Great Depression, that you must work under any set of circumstances to keep yourself afloat and keep the family going, and that level of responsibility, whether that has not transferred through to this next generation, whether we haven't imprinted our children well with that. What do you think? Well, as a fellow boomer, um, I, you know, uh, the, the sins of the fathers, I guess, is what we're talking about here. Right. Um, I... Uh, I think there's certainly some of that, all right? I mean, my impression, and you all look at the public opinion surveys probably more uh, intensively than I do on generational you know, differences and values. The, I mean, the generation gap that we have going in America in 2022 is every bit as large as it was at the time of the Vietnam War. I mean, the, the, the gap, it, it is not as... Um, it's not as obvious, perhaps, uh, but it is, it's an enormous generation gap. Um, that being said, if you look at uh, life uh, course labor force participation rates for guys born in different birth years, uh, it looks like the rings of a tree. You know, for uh, for people who were born in uh, 1920, the uh, you know, percentage of uh, guys participating in the workforce in this key age was higher than for guys born 10 years later, was higher than for guys born 10 years after that, was higher. Than, you see where it's going. Uh -huh. it, just keeps on, it just keeps on going down. At and roughly so, a linear rate, at a linear rate. It will... It, like I say, it's like looking at rings of uh -huh. a tree. So mm -hmm. each, so 
this this has been happening throughout the post-war period, and we're kind of, I think, acutely aware of particular sorts of watersheds. But this has been a very long-running uh, drama. Um, I'm just wondering if, if um, the same, th- you know, obviously there's different situations, but, you know, you studied Korea, we've looked a lot at East Asia. Is there a similar phenomena there, or is it just simply a lack of workers? I mean, um, it, 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 you know, because obviously this global labor shortage, particularly in in the high income countries, is including China, is going to be pretty universal. So, is it different in Asia than what we see here, or? Well, in Korea is an interesting comparison, Joel, because um, the United States and uh, ROK are still outliers among the affluent democracies uh, in one particular respect. They work, quote, too much, mm-hmm. or at least people who are employed work uh, longer hours than you would have, than you would expect, given the national levels of income, since free time is kind of like a luxury, uh, you know, um, but at this point, uh, at this point, if you happen to be working in the United States, on average, you're working more hours than people are in Japan. You know, I mean, so much for, you know, Asian values, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> that's not true in Korea. In ROK, uh, the hours are even longer. But, but what you see in both the U.S. and in ROK uh, is this uh, change within the family structure. And I don't think you can uh, talk about any of the stuff uh, in the men without work uh, without looking at family structure. Uh, I mean, in the U.S., we've been having this. Um, uh, I, I mean, if I'm going to be neutral about it, I'd say transition. Not the way I've been, you've seen this uh, collapse of the uh, of the former uh, notional uh, two parent family, uh, and this has been going on since uh, the mid 1960s, at least. Um, Moynihan originally, famously, notoriously flagged this with the uh, with the black family in America. At the time, he took uh, an awful lot of arrows for, uh, you know, committing truth in public. Um, At the time, he not unreasonably surmised that this was unique because of the legacy of slavery and discrimination that Black Americans suffered. Um, Now we know that this was more like a leading indicator than it was like an exception. So we have that particular phenomenon going on. Uh, In South Korea, it's been rather different. Uh, There has been a flight from marriage by women. Uh, And uh, if you ask uh, South Korean women why they're fleeing from South Korean men, they'll give you some interesting answers. But leave that aside. this has been this has been quite rapid over the last generation, but because the norms uh, for out of wedlock childbearing are so much different in uh, in ROK and in East Asia, uh, being a 
unmarried woman really means for the most part being a childless woman. So there's been this uh, plummeting of fertility and uh, this uh, explosion of childlessness that's underway in ROK, which is a little bit different from what we've got. I mean, the last time I looked, and you may have more up-to-date figures, the um, the snapshot period total fertility rate for the city of Seoul was like about 0.66 or something. Wow. You know, two-thirds of a birth per woman per lifetime. If that Yeah, be- Beijing and, and Shanghai are not far from that. Yeah, yeah I mean, but so, that's so far below replacement rate for everybody compared to everybody else. I mean, yeah, it's, it's like turn out the lights, you know. Yeah. Uh, and But the... Uh, What's what's so hard to understand is the only times that uh, one saw uh, numbers like that in the past were usually during periods of total war or famine uh, or you know catastrophic um, pandemics. Right. I mean, the only time in recent history that we saw something like this uh, elsewhere in a society. Uh, undergoing orderly change in progress was in East Germany after the collapse of communism. So, you know, so you've you've got a kind of an East German communist collapse scale birth level in places that seem to be booming. So there's this enormous, uh, this um, cognitive dissonance uh, underway in uh, when one looks at what's going on with family in Korea versus what you see going on in the labor market. And, one, and I don't think that can last. I think you, you can't keep those two trends separate forever. Well, I also wonder, you know, in in uh, in the work that, that I've looked at, that the um, that it, it there is there is a, a a family issue. But one of the things I think that's common is that young people and their parents don't think their kids have a very good future ahead of them. Um, and of course, then you add in, you know, climate hysteria, and then you say the world's coming to an end. I mean, it's, you know, to me, it's very medieval. Obviously, we, we're talking about the return of feudalism. So, so you know, the so <clears throat> is it also a reflection of the fact that I'm not going to work really hard because it's not going to make a difference? Like, you know, uh, as Marshall and I know from teaching here in, in California, these kids know that if they stay in California, they're never going to own a house. Right. I mean, they're, you know, that that owning a business is, is, is sort of a torture test. Well, and, and even beyond that, their goals for themselves are so uh, focused around work-life balance. Yes. Overemphasizing life than work. And so, you know, they... They don't even want to participate. They just want to cruise. Well, so if you look at if you look at today, if you just took 2022 and you compared the attitudes of uh let's say 18 to 34 year olds to those of you know boomers, you'd say, wow, okay, well, this explains a lot. And um, you know, there's a good argument there. The funny thing is though that We've been on this path for like 50 years. So even before this difference in attitudes was so evident, something was going on. Something was going on for decades. And I mean, and now all of a sudden we can say, wow, I should have had a V8. You know, I mean, this is kind of, it's kind of like apparent 
But this has been sneaking along for a long, long time. But now, how, now, how do you uh, connect that with, for instance, the ever decreasing work week in Western Europe? Hmm. You know, because those policies have been also emerging over the past 50 years. Yes. Yes. Well, um, if I were to um, pretend I were an economist, I would say that in societies that have uh, rising levels of affluence and rising levels of income, uh, a preference for free time would be revealed by more affluent populations. And this might mean that uh, over time, we'd see the work week declining and the um, and free time increasing. Note that I am not using the word leisure. When I was mistrained in economics as a young man, uh, the standard formulation was work or leisure. Uh, as you know, uh, leisure has a is a very specific use of free time that actually is restorative or uplifting. Uh, there's a lot of use of free time that is degrading, which is part of what we see, I think, in quite terrifying ways in the self-revealed, uh, self-reported uh, time use surveys from you know, male workforce dropouts. So what we have in the United States kind of flies in the face of that very simplistic, uh, stylized fact I laid out for you. On the one hand, we've got this uh, majority of people, big majority of people who are in the workforce, and despite being one of the most prosperous societies humanity has ever known, uh, have very, very long work hours compared to other affluent, less affluent countries. Um, that's on one side. On the other side, we have this growing fraction of uh, working age men whose uh, hourly or, or yearly work rate is like zero. Right, so they're opting. This, they're opting out of the of the yeah. system. So we've got so we've got this bifurcation. I mean, this is you get you go back to uh, Keynes and his essay about the economic possibilities for our grandchildren from 1930. And he was, you know, in the depths of the Depression, he made this really bold prediction that our grandkids are going to be way richer than we are, which may have, I mean, may have seemed like he was out on a limb, but he was, you know, spot on on that. The part that he talked about um, where he wasn't quite there, or at least we're not quite where he was, uh, you know, musing about. So he said the real problem in the future is going to be using all of our free time from uh, you know, from the mechanization of work, and uh, you know, the people will be having a ten and twelve and fifteen hour a week, uh, you know, job, uh, you know, job assignment, and filling all of that free time is going to be the big uh, problem of the future. Well, we're not quite there, but if you look at the United States, uh, we've got. One group of people, the great majority, who work an awful lot, and another group of people of working age who aren't working at all. And um, and, and average social media usage is about eight hours a day. Yeah. So somehow we've been able to step up to finding ways of filling the free time. But but, but I, I guess you know as we uh, you know I mean as we sort of move to the conclusion, what policy steps can we take? You know, we here in California. Um, there's a lot of support for universal basic income. Uh, 
you know, Gavin Newsom keeps sending checks. Now it's going to be fun when when there's a thirty-five billion deficit. That will be yeah. that that will be interesting. But you know, what policy? Because it seems to me that that a large part of the policy agenda is just give give the you know this disenchanted working class, this proletariat, new proletariat, enough money to live decently, play video games, smoke pot, and watch. Watch watch uh, porn videos. I mean, I don't know what it's ready ready player one. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Well, so for so let's go backwards. Which policies do we want to avoid? Which policies do we want to think about? And what is left over afterwards uh, that we won't have touched some days? So. Um, UBI is uh, universal basic income is about the worst possible policy that I can think of uh, as a way to address this um, employment or non-working problem. And the and I'm not talking about the expense or the implications for debt or the implications for the macro economy for you know trying to finance uh, UBI. Um, if you look at time use of the, um, if, if you look at time use of the men who are neither working nor looking for work nor in education training, what they say, it's a, it's kind of horrifying. They basically say that they're not doing civil society, they're not worshiping, they're not volunteering, they're not doing charity. They got a whole lot of time, but they're not helping out that much with uh, chores around the house or with household members. Uh, what they say they're doing, as you were intimating, is like watching a whole lot of screens for about uh, 2,000 hours uh, a year, kind of like this with a full-time job. And to make it even more cheerful, uh, in the times when the Bureau of Labor Statistics had asked before the pandemic in some of these surveys, uh, are you taking any pain medication? About half of these guys say, yeah, I'm taking it every day. So uh, do we really want public policy to buy more of this for us. That's what UBI is going to do. So that, I mean, that seems to me to be absolutely, uh, you know, kind of like a, uh, a calamitous, uh, a calamitous decision that one would bring upon one's own society. And you don't you know, stay away from that one, please. If there are a couple of things that I think government could do or could stop doing badly uh, that might help a bit. Um, one is we've got this obvious skills gap in the U.S. Uh, due to the miserable performance of too many of our K through 12s, um, and it's kind of revealing inadvertently that I'm not supposed to use the word vocational anymore because that's been made politically incorrect by educators. I mean, that also is kind of revealing about what our problem is, but we need a lot more vocational in America, uh, and there are lots of different ways we could look at doing that, uh, but that's one kind of little basket. We've got this terrible problem with our archipelago of uh, disability insurance programs in the United States. They don't talk to each other. There's nobody in Washington who can tell you exactly how many people are even receiving disability in the United States because of this dysfunction. But we know that 
We know that more than before the pandemic, more than half of the prime age guys who were neither working nor looking for work were receiving at least one disability program payment. And about two thirds or more were in households that were receiving at least one, maybe more. Um, not saying that it causes uh, you know, causes this problem because I can't prove that, and I don't think anybody could prove that. But it is financing a non-work lifestyle for millions and millions of people in the U.S., and it's gone from its original, I think, noble purpose to the unintended consequence portion of the program, where it's kind of. Um, uh, encouraging helplessness and dependency. And if we could um, more or less turn it on its head so that we had a work first principle, which is obviously easier said than done, um, that would have some unintended consequences of its own, but I think they would be less pernicious than what we've got now. There's one last thing I'd mention about policy we probably have 25 million American adults with a felony conviction in their background at this point. That's probably something like one in seven adult guys, more than one in seven uh, prime age guys. We don't have any information on this for the nation as a whole. For some reason, Uncle Sam hasn't been interested or uh, motivated to collect information on this. We've got... We've got, we're the first new nation. We're the first, we're kind of like a data friendly government. I mean, 1790 US population census is like high tech data for like the 18th century. So how come, how come we aren't doing this? We can't even have uh, evidence based policies for reentry if we don't have the evidence. So those right. are well, like your, your point is that, that when you have that level of people with that, with a felony conviction and the felony, felony convictions, effectively deal you out of the mainstream work economy. Um, you know, no wonder we no wonder we have so many unfilled positions. So I there is a Bermuda Triangle in the United States, within our continental United States, which uh, is the Venn diagram for uh, ex-cons, uh, addiction, uh, disability. Uh, and I think that if you if you had the numbers, which I do not, and I, I think only the good Lord at the moment has these numbers, uh, for who exactly uh, is in these different circles and where they overlap in the seven plus million population of guys who are neither working nor looking for work, you'd find a lot of overlap in there. Yeah, no, I, I suspect you're correct. Joel, you want to uh, have give the, the final question? Yeah, I, what I wanted to see is, you know, because we know obviously, you know, you and 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 Richard Reeves and others have really done a great job of explaining this problem. What I feel less confident about is where are the solutions? I mean, if the the Democrats uh, seem to just want to just inc increase essentially the welfare payments and to an ever larger group of people um, in, in one form or another. Um, when I talk to Republican libertarians, I think they have no interest in how the society functions and where it's going. I mean, I've sat down with billionaire, you know, high tech guys, and you just say, like, you know, do you understand what's going on in 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 the back of the restaurant that you go to all the time? I mean, do you have any idea what's going on if if you just drove, you know, from uh, 
from Sunset Plaza to to uh, south or to the southern parts of, of Los Angeles. The question is, I don't see either party having a solution. Is there anything optimistic? Is there any movement that you think might lead to a better result? You mentioned movement. I'll get to that. Um, I I didn't bring my magic wand today, so I can't fix the family. And I also can't fix our value structure in the United States. I can't quantify statistically the changes in our uh, outlooks and attitudes and morals and values compared to 65 when we started seeing this change, but it's manifestly different. I mean, it's manifestly different expectations and attitudes. And these are hugely, uh, these are hugely important. One movement which could do an awful lot uh, would be another great awakening. We are a country that uh, is subject to uh, repeated great awakenings. Um, we never know when they are going to come. My wife says she would settle for even a small awakening, and I, that would be not so bad either. Well, we got an awakening. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we got instead, isn't it? But here's here's what I... Here's what kind of thing kind of ties this together as a, you know in kind of like the dilemma because of what we see unfolding the different aspects of what we've been talking about is what I've written about elsewhere and called the new misery um the new misery has emerged at a time when US economic growth is uh strangely unnaturally poor uh, for all of the 21st century thus far our per capita annualized growth has been just barely over 1%. I mean, think of how much lower that is than in the post-war era, or even in the, you know, the first half of the 20th century or the second half of the 19th century. Uh, part of what the, the new misery is partly a response to this uh, much slower growth rate, but it's also contributing to this much slower growth rate. And the way I think there, there are a lot of tech questions about that, which uh, would, would uh, take us into a whole other discussion with your friends. Uh, but um, we can do something about this. And part of what we can do about this, I think, is to commit truth in public and to commit truth around our kitchen tables, which is that work isn't just a dollar and cents question. Work is a service to other people that helps you complete yourself. You know, uh, there was this Greek guy, I think he lived a long time ago, named Aristotle, who said that human beings were social creatures. And if you're not connected to society, bad things happen to you. If you're not connected to work, if you're not connected to your family, if you're not connected to your community, if you're not connected to faith, um, you will suffer. Um, and bringing that basic truth, which is obviously a very value-laden truth, back into uh, circulation and not being afraid to talk about it, I think would have um, not necessarily immediate, but very powerful and very enduring value. Well, I don't, we couldn't have said it better, I don't think. This, this has been great um, and, you know, hits the issues that we, you know, we're concerned with, you know, all over the country, but you know, here in California, particularly, where we, I think, we have a large group of this type of person that you're talking about. So, uh, Nick, I, I, I think this is terrific, and we're hoping that other people will, you know, follow what you're doing and what other writers are doing. 
because uh, you know i mean we're probably too old to see the worst results of this but but um our children will amen amen thank you so much for for joining us that's oh, it was a blast for me thank you so much for asking me marshall thank you so much joel thank Take you care.